Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Chancellor of the Exchequer. Getting a lesson from the Shadow Chancellor on how to balance the books is like getting a lesson from Dracula on how to look after a blood bank. Ed Balls. A steady as she goes budget. What kind of ship does he think he's on? The Titanic? The Marie Celeste? Welcome to EMQs from Political Currency with Ed Balls and George Osborne. Hello. And welcome to Ex-Minister's Questions, EMQs. That's our weekly bonus episode dedicated to all of the fantastic questions you have sent us in over the last week or two. And we have been deluged with brilliant questions, have we not? It's true. I mean, actually going through, it was so hard to choose because, you know, we could do this for two hours. There are so many questions. You can always send in your questions, questions at politicalcurrency.co.uk. Also your comments. What we really like is when you post comments and give us reviews on your podcast platform, whether that's on Apple or Spotify or anywhere else. We actually had a review this week, a five-star review with the headline, Good. Osballs, Ballborn, Clearly, they need to change their names. They want to make it as a double act. But as a pair, they're pretty engaging. And this is quite good. Warning, unlike some other political podcasts, this one features a Tory who is actually a Tory. Just mentioning it as this can be a bit jarring for the uninitiated. That came from actually an anonymous person called Name2157. So, but he gave us five stars. And George, he thinks you're a Tory. Well, I am a Tory. I mean, you know, back when the Tories were all for reducing taxes, shrinking the size of the state, growing the economy. Remember that? Remember that kind of Tory? Where are they now? Um, what has gone wrong? I'm not sure. He says we should change our names, although he doesn't give his, he or she doesn't give his own name. Doesn't mean we're not very grateful for the five stars. You change your names all the time. Yeah, you? I know. I'm not I sure mean, you've I had so many names. I don't think I can change my name again. But you, you must have resisted the thought about changing your Surname. Are you joking? Yeah. When I was 13, 14, and 15, I thought, my God, got to change my name. But by the time I got to be like an adult, you went to university, becomes part of who you are. I mean, you know, from that moment on, I would never, ever think about changing my names. And as I always said, you know, if you think it was bad for me, think how much worse it was for my sister, Ophelia. Had a much harder time at school. But anyway, let's I move was on. at university with someone called Richard Head, or Dick, as sometimes he was called. Right. Anyway. I bet you were the kind of person who laughed at that. No. You'd have taken the am mickey I, Am I laughing now? No. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Get on with it. We're, we're, good to hear from Richard, wherever he is now. Now, we have, talking about names, we've got our first question is from someone called Mike Clifford. And, Mike Clifford. And for those of you who've been listening to EMQs, you might have remembered that there was a question from a Mike Clifford last week. 
This is a different Mike Clifford because last week's Mike Clifford was Ellie's dad. Ellie is our producer. And this Mike Clifford is definitely not Ellie's dad, or at least as far as she's aware. Hi, Ed and George. You recently discussed political coups. These coups usually turn out to be a messy business. What are your thoughts about Labour planning a smooth leadership transition? Maybe three to four years into a Sir Keir Starmer premiership. If this happens, who do you think would succeed him and why? So the reason I ask this is because I believe the opinion poll lead by Labour is masking the underlying weakness of a Sir Keir Starmer leadership. And this has been identified in focus groups. So when the Tories elect a charismatic leader, dare I say Nigel Farage, and people forget about the chaos, Labour will then have a hard time winning the next election without their own charismatic leader. Right. Well, Mike, you want us to get onto the Labour leadership contest. There might be several Tory leadership contests before we get to the next Labour leadership contest. But here's it. I'm going to throw this to you, Ed. Who are the, you know, it's very hard to, you know, you'll say it's obviously Keir's there forever and blah, blah, blah. Who are the runners and riders to look out for, for a future Labour leader other than the brilliant Yvette Cooper? Look, George, I'm not going to get drawn into that nonsense. I'm going to answer Mike's question. And I'm, <laughs> of course, going to challenge his, his premise. I'm not going to start speculating about who would be the Labour leader after Keir Starmer. I think the answer to Mike's question, look, uh, it's definitely true. The Conservatives have always been better at managing leadership transitions when they're in power than Labour. And so if it, ever, if it ever came to that, it would be a big mess. But if you actually look back in history to Tony Blair pre-97, Margaret Thatcher pre-79, Clement Attlee, they were all seen as people who were in opposition. You know, were they up to the job? Remember Bambi Blair? Would they last the course? Would they actually be able to do it? That was set up for all of those people who then became in office actually strong, effective, respected leaders. And so my prediction is that Keir Starmer will go down that road if he's elected, if Labour wins and he becomes the Prime Minister this year. I think that, you know, statesmanship and solidity. Think about him challenging Boris Johnson over Partygate. Think about, you know, the way he responded to the death of the Queen. I think he's got that style. So um, I'm going to challenge your premise. If he gets there, I think he'll surprise you. No, I I'm, not, I'm not suggesting he's about to fall the moment he gets into Downing Street. Yeah, but Mike was. My, Mike's question is, is Labour any good at changing horse mid, mid-race? Because the yeah, Tories are, that, you know, they have. But he, but he was saying Starmer wouldn't be charismatic and therefore he'd have to go. And that's a premise I'm challenging. Uh, but there's another rule about prime ministers, isn't there? Often what makes them is what brings them down. So, you know, Margaret Thatcher, strong willed, ends up being too domineering. John Major, every man ends up being called too bland. I don't agree with that, but there you go. David Cameron rises on the back of ending the European wars in the Tory party, ends falling victim to them. So, you know, Starmer maybe. Sir Keir Starmer, straightforward, bit boring, not that exciting. Maybe that will be a problem for him. That's what Mike, I think, is alluding to. Look, George, we could talk about this for hours, but let's be honest. Your little boy is only a few days old. You've promised Thea you will change all the nappies for the first month. We can't keep on this podcast too long because you've got other duties. We're going to have to move on. And our second question, an interesting question from Carol. We've actually had lots of um, versions of this question over the last few months. So, Carol. Hello, George and Ed. 
This question is primarily directed at George. Please can you explain the thinking behind the current child benefit policy, where a single earner who earns more than 60000 a year gets no child benefit, but a two-earner household can earn £49,999 each and still receive the benefit. I believe that you, George, came up with this travesty of justice, so I'd be interested to understand the thinking behind it. I have no children myself, so I'm not personally affected, but I just cannot understand how you came up with this. Kind regards, Carol Forshaw in Bolton. Tell us what you really think, Carol. Yeah, well, no, it's a, it's a perfectly <laughs> fair question here from Carol. So, first of all, the thinking behind removing child benefit from the better off 20% of the population, the, the top 20% of the population in terms of income, was because during that period of austerity, I made a pledge that we would all be in it together. And I worked extremely hard to make sure that better off people in the country did contribute towards the reduction in public spending. And that's quite hard to do if you're doing it through public spending because, of course, lots of the benefits go to the poorer people in our society and the like. So child benefit was a universal benefit. The, the better off 20% were receiving it. And so I decided to remove it from them as part of the austerity package. And the reason why there is this anomaly, which uh, Carol highlights, which is that in a family where one person is earning over £60,000 a year, then the child benefit is removed. But if you have two earners in the family earning less than £50,000, they don't, even though their household income is greater, is because of the way the tax and benefit system works. So benefits are calculated on an entire family's income, right? So they take all the earnings coming in to the family and you're assessed that this is true if you're eligible for universal credit and the like. Taxes are just assessed on individuals ever since Nigel Lawson got rid of the um, system whereby married women were taxed alongside their husbands. So he introduced the independent taxation of women, essentially. And as a result, we would have to have introduced a whole new way of assessing the total income of the wealthiest 20% of families if we were going to do this. Because their income is, because they don't receive other benefits, they don't get their income assessed. So there would have been a whole new apparatus of the state created. And it was a simpler system to simply say, if there's someone in the household paying the higher rate of tax, that's where the threshold is, if there's someone in the system paying a higher rate of tax, then they don't, no one in that family can receive child benefit. And as I say, of course, I didn't expect anyone to thank me for that because it's a difficult decision to take money away from people. But it was a way of making sure the whole of society made a contribution to austerity and repairing the public finances after the crash. And it's been done in the most administratively straightforward way possible. I hope that's a reasonable explanation. You may not agree with the policy, but that, and it's interesting, no one has dared touch it since because uh, no one is proposing to give child benefit back to the, when I say the wealthiest 20%, by the way, I know there'll be lots of people listening to this who feel that they're not particularly wealthy, even if they're in that category of people. Look, George is completely right. And when Nigel Lawson made the, the shift to independent taxation, 1989, I think it was, the people who benefited were um, two earner households and the people who lost out were one earner households on the same income. Because if you're a two earner household, 
you get two sets of personal allowance now, um, whereas in the old days, you were discriminated against. So it was a right move, but the reality then is you have exactly the kind of unfairness that you highlight, Carol, if you try to use the individual tax system to claw back from a household, because it's always going to benefit the two-owner household more than the one-owner household. But that is why I wouldn't have done what George did. We had a, a principle we used to call progressive universalism, where you had some things which went to everybody and some things which went to the poorest families. And child benefit was a universal benefit, like the pension, basic pension, which went to everybody. And then we didn't use the tax system. We used the working families tax credit, the tax credit system, to then give more to people on lower yeah, incomes who on. needed it more. Oh. And, and, yeah, but let me finish my point and then you can knock me down because you spoke for quite a long time. And the, the tax credits and the pension credit gave more money to people who needed it most. And the moment you take away the universal element or you start to claw it back, then the danger is that um, you have losers and that's what happened. Yeah, but hold on. You were Shadow Chancellor during this period and you did not promise to reverse my cut. You did not go into the 2015 election saying you're going to give child benefit back to these people. Well, of course I didn't, because, you know, in, in opposition, you have to be very careful that you don't make promises which you don't know you can keep. But I think we would have thought quite hard about it. I mean, how much did you actually raise from it that was, change? It was quite a few billion pounds. I tell you, I mean, I will make one observation. I'm just saying I wouldn't have done it. I'm going to get myself into a whole load of trouble by saying this, so, but there you go. At the same time as I did this, we also made changes to the tax credit system which did withdraw money from people lower down the income scale, not the poorest 20%, we protected them, but uh, people in the kind of middle income bracket. And on the various TV interviews and radio interviews I did in the following year, I was always asked about the child benefit policy and rarely asked about the tax credit policy. And I came to a rather cynical view that because the people asking me the question were journalists who had were in the uh, top uh, fifth of the income scale, they would ask me this question because it directly affected them and they didn't really bother with the tax credit question because it didn't affect Look, them. But I know having said that, I've like probably thrown a match into the tinderbox, but there we go. But the rise in child poverty during those years didn't happen because of what was happening to child benefit. It happened because of what was happening to tax credit. So maybe the journalists should have focused more on those well, people and less on themselves. Child poverty did not rise during my period as child but we will come back to that. We could, we could definitely debate Ooh, this for the next That is hour. definitely a good thing to discuss. Let's move on. Next up is Peter. Hi, Ed and George. Um, I'd really like to have a better understanding on what effect the increase in the minimum wage of nearly 10% in April this year is likely to have on inflation. As a business owner whose labour costs are 50% of turnover, when the minimum wage goes up, I find I now have to do a similar increase across all staff levels, not just those on the minimum wage. Otherwise, wage differentials disappear. Having spoken to many other business owners, I find they now do the same. So in effect, the percentage increase in the minimum wage is now setting the wage inflation. I'd be very interested to have your thoughts on this, please. So Peter, if the minimum wage goes up, there are three different things which can happen. People can just raise the prices of the goods that they sell to kind of claw back the money from the higher minimum wage. Or they can find ways to absorb that extra cost in efficiency within the business, or they can they can lay people off. And the question always in economics, which you're analysing, is which of those three things will happen. Governments often do things which raise prices. So if you think of inflation in the autumn, the reason why the inflation numbers were strong because of the rise in alcohol and tobacco use, which pushed up prices. But the question then is, how does that knock through? And the debate in economics has been, 
which way will it go? And I think the reason why the argument for the minimum wage became stronger over the 2000s and Labour introduced it and then George carried it on was that the economic evidence has been that it doesn't go into either layoffs or into big rises of inflation and often businesses can absorb that. But that won't be true for every business, especially a business which is operating in a more competitive or traded environment. And the government is calculating that if they do this minimum wage rise, that will see real benefits to lower paid working people without long-term impacts upon inflation or job losses. But there will be a bit of a rise in inflation as a result. And the Bank of England takes that into account. And that's the economics and the politics of it. There is, of course, a low pay commission that makes this assessment. We're also in a period where a very tight labour market, so unemployment is very low. And I remember when we introduced the national living wage, you know, I had quite a kind of debate inside the Treasury and with the low pay commission about, you know, a big increase in the minimum wage. And of course, conservative chancellors before me had argued against increasing the minimum wage or indeed introducing one. And, you know, I felt confident that given this low unemployment, the country could absorb it. And I think it's been absolutely critical. We were talking about uh, child poverty. In fact, you know, that big increase in the minimum wage, I I give credit to Ed's government for introducing the minimum wage in the first place, but there was a big, big increase in 2015, 2016. And that has meant that the incomes of the poorest in our society have increased over the last seven or eight years compared to the rest of the population. So the wage differentials point that Peter's making, did everyone's wages get bumped up? Well, not really to the degree that maybe happens in your company, because what it's actually done is raise the incomes of the lowest paid compared to the average paid in the economy. And that's a good thing. A quick bit of nerdy economics. There were two American economists called David Card and Alan Kruger who did important research in the 90s. They actually surveyed what happened in McDonald's restaurants in America. And they showed that when minimum wages rose in those states where the minimum wage went up, it didn't result in higher prices or lower unemployment or job losses. It was something that those companies absorbed in those states. And Carden Kruger won a Nobel Prize in economics for that research. And that was the foundation which moved the minimum wage from being contested to being consensual. It would have persuaded George and economists with him in the Treasury in his period to carry on doing this. And that's a really good example of empirical research by two economists, which actually changes the way people around the world think about a very important policy issue. There we are. Bit of a nerd moment for me there. I will point out, actually, I had to wait for it to be a Conservative-only government to introduce the national living wage. It was just, we thought the politics of doing it inside the coalition with uh, Liberal Democrat ministers in charge of minimum wage policy was too hard. And indeed, we discovered that Peter Mandelson had tried to intervene in the Labour government and set the minimum wage, and the Low Pay Commission had threatened to resign. And that was another obstacle we had to overcome. Anyway, perhaps we should come back to that. It's an interesting period of policy making. But thank you, Peter, for that question. We will have more questions, including how Ed met the Fonz from Happy Days after this ad break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back. So a question from Jenny, picking up on my admission last week that I met the Fonz in 10 Downing Street. Jenny. Hi, it's Jenny here from Nottingham. It's a question for Ed. In a recent podcast about political coups, you mentioned a coup against Gordon Brown. You said you were called away to do an emergency press conference, but the luckily for you, you were in number 10 at the time meeting the Fonz. It made me laugh out loud, as I thought there were probably only a couple of the people listening who knew about that meeting and what you were talking about. As I recall, the attendees were Sarah Brown, a senior civil servant who happened to be my former boss, the Fonz, and you. My boss thought Sarah Brown was very impressive. Can't remember what he said about you, though, Ed. Of all the celebrities you and George have met in your political careers, who impressed you most and why? So I should tell you about the Fonz, first of all. He um, is actually a great campaigner for giving children confidence and help to deal with dyslexia, because he himself, Henry Winkler, has dyslexia, and he has written novels about um, children with dyslexia for kids. And he and I have been on a number of school visits where we've read these books to to children, and it was something that I championed because we introduced special training for teachers to help them deal with dyslexia. But my best meeting, even better than the Fonz, was my meeting in my office when I was Secretary of State with Dolly Parton. And Dolly Parton had um, Dolly Parton had. had what was um, Dolly Parton doing in your office? So Dolly Parton has this brilliant foundation, the Dollywood Foundation. I think she lives in Dollywood, and they they fund books which are sent to mothers on low incomes to read to their children in the early months of their lives to kind of and this is something she feels very passionately about because I think for her it was a huge challenge learning to read and from a very poor background when she was uh, growing up so she was trying to persuade us to extend this into the UK and she'd asked for a meeting ironically she'd actually persuaded to do a pilot of sending out these books she'd persuaded Rotherham Council so the leader of Rotherham Council right the Rotherham MP John Healy and Dolly Parton all came to see me. The department was quite sceptical about this because they said, actually, the problem is if you give these books to these mums and you're sending them out by the post, often they don't get to them. It works much better if you hand over a book. We had a thing called Bookstart where we gave books to. But surely, I said, I, surely you hit I said, the doorsteps with Dolly. I said, I don't mind. I just want to meet Dolly Parton and I want to hear what she says. My permanent secretary said it wasn't a good idea, but he had come to the meeting anyway. And we yeah, sat I bet and spoke he, about yeah, it. I bet, yeah, yeah, we spoke. For, we had this conversation for about 40 minutes. She was sitting so close to me. She was absolutely amazing. We talked about all different things about her life and all that kind did of stuff. Did she sing then, Jolene to you? She didn't sing Jolene. And I'd nor did I ask her, but she leaned over to me. She put her hand on my inner thigh. Oh my God. Ed, she said, I'm really sorry to hit upon you. 
And of course, you know, she meant it in the American sense of hit upon, which meant, you know, to ask for money. You went, you went all red. You went like, I just said, Dolly, you can hit upon me anytime you like. This is possibly the most <laughs> exciting moment of my life. Then we had a photo at the end. She said, could we have a photo? My permanent secretary, I've never seen a man, Sir David Bell, run round the desk so fast to get in the photo with Dolly Parton, even though he hadn't wanted us to have the meeting. And then about a month later, a picture arrived in the post of me and Dolly for my birthday, in which she'd written, happy birthday, love Dolly. And that was my, I mean, she was, you know, a great campaigner, hugely progressive. And was she working nine to five? I mean, you know, she was. She's actually. I I think she's somebody who's getting becoming a bigger star, even since she met you. Maybe because she met you. And and she was brilliant at Glastonbury when she did the legend slot on the Sunday afternoon. May I ask you this? Can you talk? Yes, I can. You cannot. Yes, it's not possible. Nobody can top Dolly Parton. I can actually. So before I get there, let me say I met Henry Winkler and uh, the Fonz, and you have to be of a certain age to think that's very cool to meet the Fonz. Hey, (laughs) that was great. Um, and I agree with you, Jane. What are you talking about, Richie? To actually answer Jenny's question in terms of where have celebrities really helped with campaigning, I think Bono should get a shout out for the work he's done with both parties on development assistance. But the way I'm going to top Dolly is Dr. Dre of NWA came around to have tea with me in Downing Street. So the Who? Pro- Dr. Dre, the, he's Who? like the world's top rapper straight out of Compton. Right, okay. I'll, I'll look him up after. So I thought you were going to say a big celebrity. Dr. I mean, Dre is the... Dr. Who? Oh, my God. Well, first of all, you need an education. I'm, I'm going to send you... I'm, I'm going to send, my phone. Right, I'm going to send you... Get, and work it. Who well, is you better guy? not play NWA on this podcast or else we might get banned. Although I did go to the NWA concert when I was uh, a teenager in London. The oh, only he's quite t- well known. He's quite well known. Of course, he's, he's the billionaire rapper. Billionaire because he's done very okay. well with all his songs. I thought you were going to say like a big star, though. I he think you said mass- Dolly Parton. Dr. Dre is a mass star. He played at the Super Bowl uh, like two Super Bowls ago. He did the okay. halftime show and he turned up in Downing Street and he's behind... There are gaps in my cultural story. <laughs> he, t- he turned up in Downing Street to have tea with me with a guy called Jimmy Iovine, who p- people... Um, who've watched America's Got Talent. He's one of the judges and he's an amazing music producer. And um, they were behind the Beats headphones as well as being Mm -hmm. uh, great uh, musicians. And he came with this kind of Santa's sack of headphones, Beats headphones. This was years ago when they were, you know, even cooler than they are now. Like they were brand new, really cool things. And he, he handed out these Beats headphones to all the secretaries and the front of house staff at Downing Street and everything. It was a, it was an amazing visit. I know you haven't heard of Dr. Dre, but to our younger listeners who haven't heard of the Fonz, may not be as completely familiar with Dolly Parton's soundtrack, they will go, yes, George wins that battle. I mean, I'm not sure about the title of some of his songs. No. <laughs> his song's called Fuck the Police. Yes. He's quite <laughs> a famous song, Ed. <laughs> oh my God, he needs an education. So is this famous? I've, ne- I've never knowingly heard this in my life. Okay, on that high note, we could end, but we're not going to, because we're going to... No, 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 before you do, I've just got to ask you, because it's yeah. big celebrity moments. I couldn't believe this. I did an interview with her on Good Morning Britain a few months ago, and I was reading in the, that Natalie Brilio, yeah. famous um, kind of singer, yeah. artist, actress, she had a thing with Liam Fox. She did not have a thing with Liam Fox. She did. She was with him for years. 
No, she did credit Liam Fox on her album, and that led gave rise to a whole lot of speculation. This was, I have to say, a stress when when Liam was not married to Jessamy. This was when he was a young bachelor about town and uh, I think was a minister in the major government. And basically, I think he helped her with some, was it some immigration issue or something like that. And uh, she put a credit on her album. She was a, a huge star in the 90s. Yeah, gen- generally, it's not a good idea for... Are you sure there wasn't some kind of like tryst, some kind of thing between Liam Fox and Natalie? I well, thought there was. I thought we'd have to get. I thought, I thought, we'd I thought have there to was get a love doctor on to ask him. What do you think? If you had to guess, well, he's told me no. So I believe him. Has he? Yes, oh, I've I asked see. him. Yeah, no, but he he would say that he's hiding his light under a bushel. Mm, possibly. Now, the next question is on Brexit bonuses, which we talked about last week. But this is a more specific question that comes from Keith. In the lead-up to the general election, both Labour and the Conservatives are talking about the importance of growth. In your opinion, if the UK rejoined the EU customs union, would that significantly improve the long-term growth of the UK economy? Or is the option of rejoining the customs union too politically toxic to even be considered? Well, let me have a first go at this. I think if I was the Labour government elected at the next election, assuming they are, for the purposes of this question, I would rejoin the customs union. So when we left the EU, remember on a 48-52 vote, there was never any suggestion during the campaign we were going to leave the customs union. And indeed, the deal that Theresa May tried to broker essentially would have kept us in the customs union. And of course, the customs union is not the same as the single market. So it doesn't bring with it that really difficult issue of free movement of people. But it does mean it's much easier for goods to cross European borders. And since we left the customs union... We should explain what one is. I think a customs union means there is no tariffs between the countries in the customs union, and they all have the same tariff to the rest of the world. So wherever a good comes in, it pays the same tariff, and then it trades freely within. So you don't have to have customs checks between Britain and France. But whether the goods come into Germany or to Greece or to Britain or to Ireland, they would all pay the same tariff coming in. So there's no kind of discrimination. So this was always a minority issue amongst hardline Brexiteers. And it's all to do with the politics of 2018, 2019, and the uh, deposing of Theresa May and the arrival of Boris Johnson. There was a big majority in Parliament if you really managed to assemble that vote against leaving the customs union, but for various reasons, Keir Starmer, by the way, partly responsible for this on the Labour side, there never was that vote. Now, if you rejoin the customs union, first of all, it's a big act of free trade. Brexit's a big act of protectionism. So you would reduce trade barriers with our most important markets. Brexit has done huge damage to exports from smaller British companies to the European continent, which have fallen as a result because of these trade barriers. We've not been able to negotiate these big free trade deals that everyone promised. We were talking about that on a recent podcast about Canada and the US. And I think here's a good political point for Labour. It's an immediate thing you can do. It will have a benefit to the economy, so you'll get some credit for it politically. And once you've rejoined the customs union, the Tory party in opposition is going to be saying, oh, no, no, you can't do that. It's a loss of sovereignty. We'd leave the customs union. And then as you got close to a general election, the threat of leaving the customs union from the opposition would become a real albatross around the Tories' neck because you have all the business community saying, oh, that'd be a disaster. 
And you know, the Tories would be trapped on this policy in opposition. And eventually, a bit like we were talking about on our previous show, Labour's £28 billion pledge, you'd have to wait for the Tories to ditch their opposition to the customs union. So it makes economic sense. It makes political sense. I don't think a Tory government can deliver it because of all the history and baggage, but it's sitting there as a juicy policy for a Labour government. Look, there's no doubt in the mad irrationality of 2019, this opportunity should have been taken and it wasn't. And uh, lots of people bear responsibility for that, including the Labour front bench. It would have made a huge difference in particular. It would have made things much easier handling the issue with Southern Ireland and Northern Ireland. You wouldn't have had to have the degree of border between the rest of the UK and Northern Ireland. However, it's ruled out. I mean, Both parties will fight in their manifestos on the commitment not to rejoin the customs union. And you're completely right. You should be really clear about this. You do not have to be in the European Union or the single market to have a customs union. It's a common thing to have customs unions between sovereign countries. I guess um, to answer Keith's question, it wouldn't make a huge difference, but it would make a difference. It is toxic. I think the debate will return. And, you know, without wanting to kind of overdo the parallel, maybe the sensible thing to do is to have, you know, five economic tests which could be set out, which would allow you to assess whether this might be a good idea or a bad idea. Of course, how you write those economic tests determines um, the answer you get. Would determine the answer. And, you know, <laughs> after there, this podcast, that is Abel's' admission that he did, these five economic tests were designed. He's talking about the ones around the euro, so that Britain wouldn't join the euro. But presumably the five tests you'd write around the customs union is so that we could join the customs union. George, I'm going to jump in a cab, scribble them down, <laughs> and email them over. That, that's how they there were we written are. originally. Now, I think George? we've got time for one final question. I know. Uh, Go and, and change those nappies, George. Come on. Yes. And this is the question from Sophie. I'm a first-year A-level student studying history, economics, and politics. Very similar to my A-levels, actually, Sophie. Which party do you think will produce the next female party leader that will go on to be the fourth female prime minister of the United Kingdom? And what advice would you give to the next generation of young people like me who are interested in politics and becoming a member of parliament? P.S. Mr. Balls was a great Father Christmas back in the day. Oh, how about that? Um, So... Look, I don't think we've got time to do justice to Sophie's question about how the young people get involved in politics. Maybe we should come back to that because that's such a big topic. Definitely. Uh, um, Let's not dwell on me being Father Christmas. Or you being Father Christmas. Which I did for 10 years on the trot. Well, (laughs) yes, you did, yes. Giving away... If I was still there, there'd be a whole new generation of Osbournes who'd have to come and sit on my knee. Yeah. Giving away presents you hadn't paid for. Lots of experience of that. Now... Sophie's question is, who's going to be the next female party leader? Well, I have to say it's likely to be a conservative, isn't it? I mean, first of all, the three female prime ministers have all been conservative, Margaret Thatcher, Theresa May and Liz Truss. And the front runners for the next Tory leadership contest, which might be around the corner, are Penny Mordaunt, Kemi Badenoch, Claire Coutinho, you probably watch as a, an outside horse, and Suella Braverman. So those are, in fact, I think the front runners, there isn't a prominent male candidate to be the next Tory leader. However, the trick here or the catch is in Sophie's question and then go on to be the fourth female Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Mm. I have to say it's quite possible that the next Tory leader will not make it as Prime Minister because this is true in the Labour Party as well as the Tories. Quite often the first leader of the opposition after you lose an election is not someone who stays the course and becomes the Prime Minister at the election they eventually win. 
Look, it's obviously very embarrassing for Labour that they haven't had a permanent woman leader. We've had both Margaret Beckett and Harriet Harman did it in a in a transitional way. And I think you're right, it's likely that the next woman political party leader for one of the two main parties will be a conservative. And the thing about leadership is you always have to to understand who is the selectorate, but also who is doing the work. And the truth is that for rising stars like actually Penny Mordaunt, but also Donnellan, Keegan, Atkins, Gatinho, they're probably on the wrong side of the Conservative Party, given the members. But then when you look at the Sweller Bravermans or the Kemi Badnocks, they may make the news, but have they actually done enough to, to reach out within the Parliamentary Conservative Party? And so I'm going to say, you know, who I think the person who might come through the middle, watch Preeti Patel. Mm-hmm. Loyalist, been supporting Rishi Sunak, actually looks rather sane compared to um Well, she Liz did Truss set up and... the Popcom launch last week, unfortunately. But I'm a big what? fan of Pretties. She was one of my I junior ministers. Uh, what about Whether the um, Prime Minister? Shadow Home Secretary in the Labour Party? She will think... not be the next she'll not be the next Tory leader. Absolutely. No, but no way. Are you she gonna be go to the future are we talking to the future first husband here? George, I would like to speculate with you, but you said you had to finish by a particular time. You've got childcare responsibilities. I really don't think I can hold you here any longer. And so, you know, I'm going to have to draw this episode of EMQs to a close without getting drawn into speculation about the Shadow Home Secretary. We will see you on Thursday for our main episode. I hope you've enjoyed EMQs. And do keep sending us your voice notes, your emails via questions at politicalcurrency.co.uk. We always prefer voice notes because it's much better to hear from you directly. Also hit follow on your podcast app. Do send us a review, especially if it's good, but reviews are always a good thing. And uh, we'll see you Thursday. George, get to work. See you then. Thanks for listening to Political Currency. This has been a Persephonica production. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.